Can you guys thank the band for leading us? It's, it's fun, you know, as we've gone through these months and, you know, we had to pare things down and there were moments where I, I would sit in front of that fireplace with cameras like this and Ellie would just kind of sit off to my side and it was just, you know, the two of us and then B-Rad and Josh running the show with the tech things. But it's fun to be at a place now where we're gathering like this again and many of you are comfortable and showing up and we're still online and, and uh, we're able to do this thing together, but then to see as more and more people are, are able to come up here and lead us in worship, it's, uh, it's encouraging. Well, do me a favor, track down a Bible and get with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're looking at, uh, we're doing an extended series on the church. We're looking at what the church is and what the church should be doing. So we're looking at various passages that help us to understand the nature and the function of God's people. And we, this morning, are going to land in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. So I will read them. Uh, we'll put them up on the screens as well. But I'll read them, then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. 1 Peter Chapter 2, starting in verse 9, reads like this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word together, we're praying that by your spirit right now, you would speak to each and every one of us that you would give us a vision for the local church, an awareness of who we are as the people of God. I pray that that vision would be inspiring, that you would captivate us by it, Lord, that what we're doing here this morning, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be able to consider it a normal activity, but we would see it for what it is, the gathering of God's people. Lord, I, I pray right now that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We find here two things, who we are and what we're to do. Who we are or the church's identity, and we see that uh, mixed throughout these verses here. But then secondly, we're also introduced to the idea of what, the, what we're supposed to do, the activity of the church. So let's take them one at a time. Who we are, we are a, a people with a special relationship to God. Listen to the way that it's described. Peter's writing to the church. This is a letter, if you look at the very beginning of it, it's to the church that's been scattered all over the place. These are believers in Christ. They're from, you know, different places in the world, but they're in Asia Minor, scattered around. And he writes to them, and then he's saying to this church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is incredible language, and it's easy for us to kind of hear it and go, okay, that sounds kind of neat, but I have no idea what, what he's even talking about. These, these terms sound fascinating, but I don't really feel the weight or the gravity of what it actually might mean. But this stacking up of terms here, this description of the church, 
is incredible. It's surprising. And in fact, as you hear it, as you sit here this morning, hopefully what you come away with is this idea of, are you sure, God? Are you, are you kidding me? Like, you think of us like this? You think we're this incredible reality? You think we are the, the people of God? A royal priesthood, a holy nation? Are you sure you got, you sure you have the right group? A couple of years ago, I've been, uh, I've been working on my master's degree and it's taken me forever because I have a few other things I'm doing as well. Um, but I've been working on it slowly and so one course at a time, just, you know, deliberately looking at a subject and then trying to apply it immediately and um, so I've been a part of this or institution for several years now. Two years ago, I got an email, and I started reading the email, and it was, um, it was a welcome to the team email. It was an onboarding email. Mr. Corey Williams, we're so glad to have you join us as a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And then it goes on to talk about the onboarding process and different things that I need to do. And I'm reading it, and I'm like, I'm like, excuse me? Like, I'm looking at it, I'm like, what are we, t- are you sure? Like, wh- what's going on here? So I'm looking at this email, and I'm thinking to myself, you got the wrong dude. I mean, you have th- my email address, you've got my name, you've got all these different things, but you've got me confused with somebody else. I'm not a professor, I'm not, uh, you know, going to go into Deerfield and teach other students in the divinity course. And so there was this surprise there where I was like, are you kidding me? Like, what is this about? And I reached back out to them and they're like, oh yeah, sorry. Uh, somebody else, not you, dude. Um, and so that was a moment where I felt what we all should feel when we think about the church, where you say, are you sure? Like, are you kidding me right now? You, you must have the wrong group. Like, you must be thinking of somebody else. To describe us in this way, you must be confused. Now, I, I just used a seminary example, so... Most of you are like, I, I don't know why anyone would ever be excited about that. So let's try it from a different angle. Imagine you're playing like Cub Scout softball. And you're on the team and then you go home and you open the mail and it's a letter from the Chicago Cubs organization and they say, welcome to the team. <laughs> and you go, wait, wait a minute, I'm not even good at, at baseball, and you want me on the team. That's how the church should respond when we hear how God describes us. Where we look at what God is saying here, and if we come to understand these terms and their significance, we should feel like, I don't know, God. I think, you, I think communication got mixed up somewhere. There might be some other church in the world that can match up to this, but it's not us. I mean, look at us. Park City Church, a humble little congregation, displaced by COVID. We were in McChesney Park. We're in Rockton, Illinois. You know, we're, we're just kind of an ordinary church, right? Just kind of an ordinary, smaller congregation. But God did not get mixed up when he wrote this letter. God did not get confused. He didn't say, oh, you know what? <laughs> Wrong address. I was talking about somebody else. No, when God looks at us, when he looks at the local church, he describes us in this way. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are my treasured possession. Now, we don't have time to go through each and every designation here, but let me just point out a couple of them. We are royalty. We are a royal kingdom of priests. We have this kingly designation, this incredible status that God has bestowed upon us. 
We have royalty. This is, this is a credential that goes beyond any other credential in the world. So imagine if you wanted to go into the White House, into the Oval Office, and have an appointment there. You would have to go through all sorts of different things to get that appointment. You'd have to have a reason for it. You'd have to have a senior staff member sign off on it. You'd go through different protocols of uh, security checkpoints and things like that to get into that office, unless, of course, you're a, you're a child of the president. And then you have immediate and direct access. Sure, you have to ask for permission, but you could go in. That's the kind of thing that God is saying to us here. We are a kingdom. We are a royal kingdom, which means we have privileges that not everyone else has. We have this royalty about us. We are a royal kingdom. We're a priesthood. That's a weird one. Priests in the Old Testament were the group of people that were responsible for dealing with sacred things, dealing with things that are holy. They would set up the tabernacle. They would carry it with them. They would deal with things that were in direct proximity to God himself. They were dealing with things that were holy. And not everyone had that privilege. In fact, the, the group, the tribe, every tribe got an allotment of land except for the, the tribe that was filled with priests. And here's what God said. They don't get land, they get me. And that was a good deal. According to the Bible, that was the greatest deal they could ever strike. They got to deal with holy things. And it's actually quite frightening because to deal with a holy God, it requires a certain, you know, awareness of what it would take to be in his presence. So there was a priest one time who was walking alongside the, the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. It's an item that goes inside the Holy of Holies. It's the place where God's presence is manifest in an incredible way. And they were traveling in the Ark, was on a cart, and it was being pulled by oxen, and the priests were walking alongside of it. And the ark hit a rock, and it started to tip. And one of the priests put his hand on the ark, just instinctually, to steady it. And he falls down dead, because God over and over and over again says, to come into my presence takes a special process. To come into my presence, it's no small thing. Or how about the, the sons of Aaron who were offering unauthorized fire before God. And he said, here's how you are to worship me. And here's the specific ways in which you're, you're supposed to deal with me. And they don't listen to God, but instead they try it their own way. And they too perished on account of that. So to be called a priest, to be called a kingdom of priests, when we think about that, we should be aware of what we're talking about, that there's something, there's some incredible privilege that we have, but it also comes with tremendous responsibility and weightiness. That God says to you and I, you are my priests. You get to come into my presence. You get to deal with the most holy of things and you're safe with me. It really is a beautiful and incredible and overwhelming reality. We are God's special possession as the whole earth is his and everything belongs to him. But he looks at us and he says, out of everything, out of everything that is mine, everything that I've made, I look at you and you are my treasured possession, the most valuable thing to me. So when we think about the church and we think about what God is saying of us, there should be a feel in us of, I'm not sure you've got the right group. Because if you think this way about us, we're, th this is just too, it's just too much. But this is how God considers his bride. 
The church is incredible. And the church is an inheritor of all kinds of promises. One of my um, passions in life is to help Christians fall in love with the Old Testament. God wants us to believe his book. He's given us his word. He's revealed himself to us in scripture. And if you're familiar with the Bible, it has two different parts to it. It has what's called the Old Testament, and then it has the New Testament. And uh, they were both developed over different periods of time. But there's this popular idea in Christianity that the Old Testament doesn't have relevance for us anymore. What we need to focus on primarily is the New Testament. Kind of reminds me of my son Harrison. He'll, he'll always ask me, Dad, can we go to the shop and get some new toys? And I say, what's wrong with the old toys? He says, well, they're not new. That's how a lot of Christians look at the Bible. We want new stuff. That old stuff is weird. Maybe it's not for us. But the truth is, God has spoken, and between two-thirds and three-quarters of what he has said is in the Old Testament. And therefore, I believe that we ought to be the kind of people who value that who value the voice of God. So let's look at some of these different Old Testament promises that Peter applies to you and I. He takes up these Old Testament realities and he says, church, here's what you have. Here's what you inherit. Well, the first one comes from Exodus 19. Exodus 19 verses 4 to 6. The people of God are around the base of a mountain. It's Mount Sinai. And God is speaking to Moses and he is instructing Moses, and he's about to draw up a covenant with his people. And it's a very terrifying experience, but they're at the base of the mountain, and here's the the proposal that God makes. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You guys observed how I rescued you out of bondage in Egypt. I brought you out. You plundered the Egyptians and you came out and then you were between the Egyptians pursuing you and a body of water and I split that body of water and you walked through on dry ground. You saw what I did for you. Here's how it could be described. I carried you out of there on eagle's wings. I rescued you. I redeemed you. You saw that. Then he says, terms of the covenant. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So church, what you inherit is something that God has been saying for a very long time. He's talking to a people and he's saying, look at how I redeem you. Look at how I carry you on eagle's wings. And if you will, You could be my people. You could be my treasured possession. You could be this kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then God looks at us today and he says, hey guys, by the way, that's you. You have this incredible promise given over to you. God looks at you and he says, you know all that stuff I've been saying for so long? Church, you get that. You can be this holy nation this royal priesthood, my treasured possession. Well, Isaiah 43 is the other place that Peter draws from. And Isaiah 43 reads like this. This is verses 19 and following. God is saying through Isaiah, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provided water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, 
my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. That, does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Peter is referencing. He's saying, listen to what Isaiah said. God is doing incredible things for his people. And he's saying, this is who they are, God's special possession. Verse 9, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The church is the people that God has been dreaming of all along. It's the people that he rescues, that he redeems, that he provides for. And he calls us together to be his, to be his chosen, to be the people he formed for himself. And here's the reason why, that we may proclaim his praise. Now we'll get into that as we look at what we're supposed to be doing, but that's who we are. We are the redeemed people who have benefited from God's gracious activity toward us. So the church is incredible. It's an inheritor of all kinds of promises, and it's a new society. It's a new people. Look at verse 9. We are a holy nation. That's an interesting word. It's actually the word ethnos, or the word that we get ethnicity from. And we're being reminded that the church is a new kind of society, that we have this new ethnicity, and it is a holy ethnicity. So my, my wife and in-laws are Swedish, and uh, they have this beautiful Swedish heritage, and so colors will, you know, remind them of Swedish things, and they've got Swedish food that they enjoy eating, and they've got this beautiful heritage that we can celebrate in all kinds of different ways. And um, that's ethnicity. But God is saying here, the church has a new ethnicity. Not to denigrate any previous ethnicity you might have, but you've got one that is even more primary now as a member of God's society. It's a holy ethnicity. So you can love certain things about your heritage and your culture and your ethnos. You can love things about your people group, and you can honor that. And in fact, that's a big part of the New Testament is the fact that you don't have to culturally change over to a new ethnicity to be a part of the people of God. You can maintain that, and it becomes dignified. But at the end of the day, the ethnicity that matters most to God is your residence in his society, and it is a holy society. So it changes the way that we interact then with culture and with society itself. We are a part of God's holy nation, meaning we are representatives and delegates of a new society, God's own kingdom. And in fact, in verse 11, he points that out and he says, as foreigners and exiles. Several years ago, I did a series with the youth group and we were going through 1 Peter and we titled it based off of this phrase right here because this is a dominant phrase throughout the entire book and it can be translated in different ways. It can be translated foreigners and exiles, but a simple word is sojourner. It means that you're somebody who's in a location but that's not your destination ultimately. And you can be there for a long, long time, but you are a traveler because you're representing another location, namely God's location, God's society. And so Peter, writing to a church, says, as foreigners and exiles, and, and the truth is some of them might say, wait, I grew up here. I, I'm not in a different location. This is where I grew up. So for me, I was born in Rockford, Illinois, I grew up here on the tree farm in, in Rockton. Um, I live in Roscoe. I look at this area and I go, this is home. I'm not in exile. 
I'm not a foreigner here. I'm a local. Like, I know things about this area that other people have no clue about. And I love this area. But God says, no, here's your new identity. Yes, you've grown up here. Yes, you love here. Yes, you know, this culture is dignified by me. But here's what you need to understand. As a member of the church, you are a foreigner. You're in exile. You're, you're different now. You're not just like any other kid from Rockton. You're a member of this new society. And therefore, there will be some things about this identity that actually are out of step with the society in which you reside, even if you grew up there. Because here's the truth now. Now you are a foreigner. As a member of God's community, you are now a foreigner and in exile, and therefore you are going to have different priorities. You're going to deal with the world differently. You're not just an ordinary individual anymore. You are a representative of God's society. So that's who the church is. We are a, a people that God has drawn to himself. We are a people that he has rescued and redeemed. We are a people who are incredible because of what God has done. We are a new society, and we are this because we're a saved people. Look at verse 9. We are a saved people in the sense that God transferred us from darkness into light. We are to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's metaphorical language to describe what it means to be saved. We once were in a situation where we couldn't see and we were groping about in darkness and God turned the lights on. He called us out of that darkness and he called us into his wonderful light. We're also outsiders who've been brought in. Look at verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. <clears throat> this is language of salvation. This is language that is describing what it means to be a follower of Christ. We have gone from darkness to light. We've gone from being an outsider to being an insider. We've gone from being outside of mercy to having received mercy. And all of this is drawing on some very incredible language from the book of Hosea. Have you guys read Hosea before? Probably not. It's a bizarre one. Hosea is a prophet. God tells this prophet, Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer. <clears throat> I want you to marry a, a woman who is unfaithful, a promiscuous woman. And I want you to have children with her. And I want you to understand what it's like to experience marital infidelity. And the whole thing is really meant to reveal what it is like for God to be in a covenant relationship with a people who continually go after others, other lovers. And God is saying, you, you will have that personal experience. And God is saying, that is my experience. I have committed myself and covenanted myself to a people and they reject me. They go after other lovers over and over again. Well, Hosea is, it's a gospel book in the Old Testament. <clears throat> it shows us salvation <clears throat> in the Old Testament, excuse me. And so Hosea marries Gomer and they start having children and God tells them what they should name their children. And the first one, well, there's three. The, the first one I won't, <clears throat> won't mention, but the second one is a little girl. And in Hosea chapter one, verse six, the name that God tells them to, to name this little girl 
is the, the name Lo Rahama, which means no mercy, not loved. This one does not receive mercy. And then she conceives and has a son. And in verse 9, God says, this one, you name him Lo Ami, which means not my people. Not my people. And then God tells Hosea, this is what it's like to be me. To be in love with somebody who does not reciprocate that love, but instead shares it freely with others. And God says, I experience this in relationship to my people. And that's why there is judgment. And that is why there will be a season where they will not receive mercy. And that is why there is a season where I reject them as my people, not my people, not loved. But he says, but then here's what I want you to do. Your wife will go off and she will be with other men. But one day I want you to, I want you to redeem her. I want you to pursue her. I want you to go back after her and welcome her back. And that's what happens in chapter 3. Hosea goes to Gomer and he receives her back and he has to redeem her. He has to pay to get her back. And he gladly does that. And God says, this is how it works. One day I'm going to do the same thing for my people. I'm going to allure them back. Verse 14 of Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to win them back to me. He goes on to say, in that day I will respond, declares the Lord. Verse 23 of Hosea chapter 2 says, I will, plant for her, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one, or the one who does not have mercy. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Guys, that is the gospel that's the experience that we have when we realize that God has made us for himself and he loves us so tremendously and we reject him. We, we, look as if, we look at him as if he is unimportant, as if he's undesirable. We reject him. That's what sin is. It's the rejection of God. And God says, that if that's really your posture toward me, then I could call you lo rahama, no mercy, or lo ami, not my people. But God says, but here's, here's the extent of my love as we sang about. I'm coming after you. I love you so tremendously that one day I will allure you back to myself. I will establish you in the land. I will show my love to you. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And here's how we respond then. We say, you are my God. That's the good news of the gospel when we realize what God has done for us, and we respond with faith in what Jesus has done. It is like coming home to God, and he receives us gladly, and he pays for all that is necessary for us to be right with him. We are a part of this community, this incredible community, not because God looks down on us and goes, man, you know what I need on my team? I need Corey. If I had him, you know, game on, things could really happen. No, no, no. I'm a sinner saved by grace. All of us are. If you're a part of the church, that's your status. That's your identity. You are somebody who has received mercy from God. You are somebody that God looks at in love. And once you were not his people, but now you are the people of God. So we are, we are part of the church because of our belief in Jesus Christ and what he has done. So secondly, what do we do then? 
What's the, what's the activity of the church? If we're this incredible organization, what is it that we're supposed to do? Well, simply put, we're the missionary people of God, so we have a job of telling others the news of our Savior. Verse 9 reads like this, You are this in order that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You're part of this community so that, in order that, you might declare his praises so that you could publish the good news of what he's done. Now, obviously, you can sing to God. That's a part of it. But this is a, this is a bigger reality. This is saying you are a, a member of God's society so that you can tell people about this society, so that you can tell people about him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We have to tell people the news of what God has done. That's what the context suggests, that this is news that we're making known. We are declaring his praises. That means we need to speak about it. We need to tell other people the incredible news. There are surveys that are going around right now that are indicating um, that Christians wonder if telling people the gospel is even a good idea. Christians are beginning to think through it's really not our place to try to convince other people of the good news of the gospel. Listen, that's, that's ridiculous. We have incredible news, and if it is true, and it is, we ought to be telling people about it. And in fact, we should be so excited about it that we really can't help it, that we want people to understand the one who rescued us, the one who has redeemed us, the one who brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We should tell the news. As a church, we're committed to helping you publish the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to equip and train people to be fluent in sharing the gospel so that you're having conversations with neighbors and friends and coworkers, and you are constantly declaring the praises of him. That's what we hope, that you would tell people the good news of the gospel. Not only do we want you to tell people the good news of the gospel, we want you to live in light of that gospel. Here's the second part of what we do. We actually want to live in a way that's pleasing to God and observable by others. So look at what he says in verse 11. <clears throat> Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Here's what it's saying. There's a, t there's a temptation within us. There are desires resident within us that are actually pulling us away from what God wants. But if we're really a part of this society and we're going to tell people the good news of the gospel, we also want our lives to match up with that. And so we have to be aware that there are going to be certain things that we need to abstain from, that there are desires within us that actually, they're not harmless. It tells us they're waging war against our soul. There are things within us that we actually have to say no to. There are temptations resident within us that we have to be aware of, and then we have to remind ourselves of our identity in heaven. Our, our identity as members of this new society. We're foreigners, we're exiles. Not everything that we want to pursue is what God wants us to pursue. We need to be able to say no about certain things. So, do you, do you ever examine your desires? The things that you are relentlessly pursuing? Because here we're being reminded of that we have desires that are sinful, that are waging war against our souls. There are certain things that we should not be pursuing that we're currently pursuing, and we need to be able to pull that out and say, 
God, is this really what you want? And if somebody looks at my life, are they going to see something like they would find in any other person in this society? Or are they going to find in me a commitment to the things of God because I'm a member of his kingdom? Well, we need to avoid sinful desires, but then positively put, we need to live in a beautiful way. Look at verse 12. It says, live such good lives among the pagans. That's a, that's a word for unbelievers. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Live in such a way that people observe Christianity. So what, you, what we don't want is for you to go to work tomorrow and for you to be publishing the praises of him who rescued you and then your coworkers go, well, if that's what a Christian looks like, I don't want anything to do with that. They're, they're unproductive. They're always complaining. They're always kind of creating conflict and strife within the organization. They're a problem. And if that's what a Christian looks like, no thank you. No, we're to live such good lives that even unbelievers observe the goodness of how we deal with circumstances and they're drawn to the Father. This is the same teaching that the Lord himself gave on the Sermon of the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself put it like this in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Live beautifully. Live under the rulership and reign of Jesus himself. Live in such a way that people observe Christ-likeness so that they are being drawn to the Father through the good deeds that complement the things that you're saying, the life that you're living that's complementing the praise that you're publishing. Live in such a way that people think, if that's what Christianity is, even though I don't like it, even though, even though I'm trying to speak ill about it, you know, accusing you of doing wrong, I keep finding over and over and over again, this Christian keeps doing the right thing. If you want to know exactly what that looks like, read the rest of 1 Peter. He begins to apply it. What, what does it look like to, to work in a job where your boss is a bum, but you're a Christian? Well, you, you do your job quite well, and it wins them over. What does it look like to be in a, in a marriage where your spouse is a bum, and you're a Christian? Well, you live in a way that's good and it actually affects the other person. What does it look like to do life in society that is hostile to God? Well, you live such good lives that though pagans accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God. Christians behave as Christians. Live good lives. Publish the good news of the gospel with your words and live in step with the goodness of the gospel with your lives. That's what we're called to do. Now, there's a timestamp on this. At the very end, it tells us that he's coming back, that God himself is going to visit, that he's returning. So here's what we found then today. We are an incredible people. Not, not because of our organizational skills or the music that we play or anything that we really do together as a church. And in most ways, there's a lot of ordinariness, at least surrounding myself, I'll own that. But when we gather together and we look at what God thinks about us, it is awesome. We have this incredible identity. Our job then is to proclaim the goodness of that gospel until he returns. We talk about it. We tell other people about it. We sing about it. We praise God for it. And we live in light of that gospel. We live in a way that reflects the beauty of that gospel until he shows up again.
So we've got our marching orders. Let's do that. If you would, please pray with me right now as the band comes, and we'll worship once more. Lord, help us to be your blood-bought people. It's so easy to be distracted nowadays. It's easy to not consider the magnitude of what you have decided about your people, that they're yours, that you love them, that we're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people belonging to you. Help us to embrace that identity. And then help us, Lord, to get about the activity of publishing the good news of the gospel so that neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members and people that we bump into on an ordinary week would just come into contact with the good news of the gospel and that they would see our lives matching up with that gospel and, and it would glorify you. That our lives would glorify you and that those observers would come to saving faith in you. Help us to be your missionary people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.